Book Twelve, Part One of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Wolfe. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Nasso. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book Twelve, Part One. Sadly, his father Priam mourned for him, not knowing that young Isacus had assumed wings on his shoulders and was yet alive. Then also Hector, with his brothers, made complete but unavailing sacrifice upon a tomb which bore his carved name. Paris was absent, but soon afterwards he brought into that land a ravished wife, Helen, the cause of a disastrous war, together with a thousand ships and all the great Pelasgian nation. Vengeance would not long have been delayed, but the fierce winds raged over seas impassable, and held the ships at Fishy Aulis. They could not be moved from the Boeotian land. Here, when a sacrifice had been prepared to Jove, according to the custom of their land, and when the ancient altar glowed with fire, the Greeks observed an azure-coloured snake crawling up in a plane-tree near the place where they had just begun their sacrifice. Among the highest branches was a nest, with twice four birds and those the serpent seized together with a mother-bird as she was fluttering round her loss, and every bird the serpent buried in his greedy maw. All stood amazed, but Calchas, who perceived the truth, exclaimed, Rejoice, Pelasgian men, for we shall conquer, Troy will fall. Although the toil of war must long continue, so the nine birds equal nine long years of war. And while he prophesied, the serpent, coiled about the tree, was transformed to a stone, curled crooked as a snake. But Nereus stormed in those Aeonian waves, and not a ship moved forward. Some declared that Neptune thus was aiding Troy, because he built the walls of that great city. Not so Calchas, son of Thestor. He knew all the truth, and told them plainly that a virgin's blood alone might end a virgin goddess's wrath. The public good at last prevailed above affection, and the duty of a king at last proved stronger than a father's love when Iphigenia, as a sacrifice, stood by the altar with her weeping maids, and was about to offer her chaste blood, the goddess, moved by pity, spread a mist before their eyes, amid the sacred rites and mournful supplications. It is said she left a hind there in the maiden's place, and carried Iphigenia away. The hind, as it was fitting, calmed Diana's rage, and also calmed the anger of the sea. The thousand ships received the winds astern, and gained the Phrygian shore. There is a spot convenient in the centre of the world, between the land and sea and the wide heavens, the meeting of the threefold universe. From there is seen all things that anywhere exist, although in distant regions far. And there all sounds of earth and space are heard. Fame is possessor of this chosen place, and has her habitation in a tower which aids her view from that exalted highs and she has fixed there numerous avenues and openings, a thousand to a tower, and no gates with closed entrance, for the house is open, night and day, of sounding brass re-echoing the tones of every voice. It must repeat whatever it may hear, and there is no rest and silence in no part. There is no clamour, but the murmuring sound of subdued voices, such as may arise from waves of a far sea, which one may hear who listens at a distance or the sound which ends a thunderclap when Jupiter has clashed black clouds together. Fickle crowds are always in that hall that come and go, and myriad rumours, false tales mixed with true, are circulated in confusing words. 
some fill their empty ears with all this talk and some spread elsewhere all that's told to them the volume of wild fiction grows apace and each narrator adds to what he hears credulity is there and rash mistake and empty joy and coward fear alarmed by quick sedition and soft whisper all of doubtful life fame sees what things are done in heaven and on the sea and on the earth she spies all things in the wide universe fame now had spread the tidings a great fleet of greek ships was at that time on its way an army of brave men the trojans stood all ready to prevent the hostile greeks from landing on their shores by the decree of fate the first man killed of the invaders force was strong protesilaus by the spear of valiant hector whose unthought of power at that time was discovered by the greeks to their great cost the phrygians also learned at no small cost of blood what warlike strength came from the grecian land the Sigian shores grew red with death-blood cygnus neptune's son there slew a thousand men for which in wrath achilles pressed his rapid chariot straight through the trojan army making a lane with his great spear shaped from a pelion tree and as he sought through the fierce battle's press either for cygnus or for hector he met cygnus and engaged at once with him fate had preserved great hector from such foe till ten years from that day cheering his steeds their white necks pressed upon the straining yoke he steered the chariot towards his foe and brandishing the spear with his strong arm he cried whoever you may be you have the consolation of a glorious death you die by me Hemonian achilles his heavy spear flew after the fierce words although the spear was whirled direct and true yet nothing it availed with sharpened point it only bruised as with a blunted stroke the breast of cygnus by report we knew of you before this battle goddess born the other answered him but why are you surprised that i escaped the threatened wound achilles was surprised this helmet crowned great with its tawny horsehair and this shield broad hollowed and my left arm are not held for help in war they are but ornament as mars wears armor all of them shall be put off and i will fight with you unhurt it is a privilege that i was born not as you of a nereid but of him whose powerful rule is over nereus his daughters and their ocean so he spoke immediately he threw his spear against achilles destined to pierce the curving shield through brass and through nine folds of tough bull's hide it stopped there for it could not pierce the tenth the hero wrenched it out and hurled again a quivering spear at cygnus with great strength the trojans stood unwounded and unharmed nor did a third spear injure cygnus though he stood there with his body all exposed achilles raged at this as a wild bull in open circus when with dreadful horns he butts against the hanging purple robes which stir his wrath and there observes how they evade him quite unharmed by his attack achilles then examined his good spear to see if by some chance the iron point was broken from it but the point was firm fixed on the wooden shaft my hand is weak he said but is it possible that strength forsook me though it never has before for surely i had my accustomed strength when first i overthrew lanessus walls or when i won the isle of tenidos or thebes then under king etian and i drenched both with their own people's blood or when the river cacus ran red with slaughter of its people 
or when twice Telephus felt the virtue of my spear. On this field also were such heaps lie slain, my right hand surely has proved its true might, and it is mighty. So he spoke of strength, remembered. But as if in proof against his own distrust, he hurled a spear against Menoetes, a soldier in the Lycian ranks. The sharp spear tore the victim's coat of mail and pierced his breast beneath. Achilles, when he saw his dying head strike on the earth, wrenched the same spear from out the reeking wound and said, This is the hand, and this the spear I conquered with, and I will use the same against him who in luck escaped their power, and the result should favour as I pray the helpful gods. And as he said such words, in haste he hurled his ashen spear again at Cygnus. It went straight and struck unshunned. Resounding on the shoulder of that foe, it bounced back as if it hit a wall or solid cliff. Yet when Achilles saw just where the spear struck, Cygnus there was stained with blood. He instantly rejoiced, but vainly, for it was Menoetes' blood. Then in a sudden rage, Achilles leapt down headlong from his lofty chariot, and seeking his god-favoured foe, he struck in conflict fiercely with his gleaming sword. Although he saw that he had pierced both shield and helmet through, he did not harm the foe, his sword was even blunted on the flesh. Achilles could not hold himself for rage, but furious, with his sword hilt and his shield, he battered wildly the uncovered face and hollow temples of his Trojan foe. Cygnus gave way. Achilles rushed on him, buffeting fiercely, so that he could not recover from the shock. Fear seized upon Cygnus, and darkness swam before his eyes. Then, as he moved back with retreating steps, a large stone hindered him and blocked his way. His back pushed against this. Achilles seized and dashed him violently to the ground. Then, pressing with buckler and hard knees the breast of Cygnus, he unlaced the helmet thongs, wound them about the foeman's neck, and drew them tightly under his chin, till Cygnus's throat could take no breath of life. Achilles rose eager to strip his conquered foe, but found his empty armour, for the god of ocean had changed the victim into that white bird whose name he lately bore. There was a truce for many days after this opening fight, while both sides resting laid aside their arms. A watchful guard patrolled the Phrygian walls, the Grecian trenches had their watchful guard. Then, on a festal day, Achilles gave the blood of a slain heifer to obtain the favour of Athena for their cause. The entrails burned upon the altar, while the odour, grateful to the deities, was mounting to the skies. When sacred rites were done, a banquet for the heroes was served on their tables. There the Grecian chiefs reclined on couches, while they satisfied themselves with roasted flesh and banished cares, and thirst with wine. Nor harp, nor singing voice, nor long pipe made of boxwood, pierced with holes, delighted them. They talked of their own deeds and valour all that thrilling night, and even the strength of enemies whom they had met and overcome. What else could they admit or think of while the great Achilles spoke or listened to them? But especially the recent victory over Cygnus held them ardent. Wonderful it seemed to them that such a youth could be composed of flesh not penetrable by the sharpest spear, of flesh which blunted even hardened steel and never could be wounded. All the Greeks and even Achilles wondered at the thought. Then Nestor said to them, During your time, Cygnus has been the only man you knew who could despise all weapons, and whose flesh could not be pierced by thrust of sword or spear. But long ago I saw another man able to bear unharmed a thousand strokes, Caeneus of Thessaly. 
Caeneus, who lived upon Mount Othrys. He was famed in war, yet, strange to say, by birth he was a woman. Then all expressed the greatest wonderment, and begged to hear the story of his life. Achilles cried, O oh, eloquent old man, the wisdom of our age, all of us wish to hear who was this Caeneus. Why was he changed to the other sex? In what campaigns, and in what wars was he so known to you? Who conquered him, if any ever did? The aged man replied to them with care, Although my great age is a harm to me, and many actions of my early days escape my memory, yet most of them are well remembered. Nothing of old days amid so many deeds of war and peace can be more firmly fixed upon my mind than the strange story I shall tell of him. If long extent of years made any one a witness of most wonderful events, and many, truly I may say to you that I have lived two hundred years, and now have entered my third century. End of Book Twelve, Part One